Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on December 7th, 2022. As we head into the closing weeks of the year, I think it's fair to say that 2022 has been an honest horribilis for fixed income markets, driven largely by the Federal Reserve's aggressive inflation-fighting campaign. And as we look ahead to 2023, investors are analyzing the latest economic data and considering what the future might hold for credit performance and relative value. One such investor is Karthik Narayanan, head of Securitized for Guggenheim Investments. Karthik joins us on the podcast to provide an overview of the residential mortgage-backed securities market and other ABS sectors, how it's been responding to quickly changing market conditions, and where he and his team are finding value right now. We also will answer a listener question addressed to Ann Walsh, our Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, and the guest on our previous podcast. But first, we will start today with a short call-in from Jerry Tsai, a vice president and economist in our macroeconomic and investment research group. He brings us the latest on the labor picture, as well as an update on China, where their zero COVID policy is testing the Chinese economy and the Chinese people. Hi, Jerry, and welcome. Thanks, Jay. Non-farm payroll came in above expectations at 263,000 in November. Job gains were led by leisure and hospitality, healthcare, and government. Retail trade and transportation warehousing posted job losses. Temporary help services, a leading indicator for overall job growth, fell for a fourth straight month. The biggest surprise in the report was the wage growth number. Average hourly earnings growth jumped to a 6.8% annualized pace in November, which completely reversed the cooling trend in wage growth. Labor supply remains restrained. The labor force participation rate declined to 62.1%, the third consecutive monthly decline, matching the lowest level this year. The only encouraging news was the decline in average hours worked, which are now back to normal levels seen in 2018 and 19. This is a good sign of easing labor market tightness and could indicate less hiring pressure going forward. Because of the decline in hours worked, the labor market should continue to cool, though wages could be slower to respond than previously expected. Other data releases suggest the U.S. economy is slowing down. The Consumer Confidence Index declined in November, with decreases in both the present situation and expectations component. Also, the ISM Manufacturing Index decreased more than expected in November, falling into contractionary territory. The composition of the report was weak, with decreases in the production, new orders, and employment components. In China, the official manufacturing PMI fell more than expected in November due to COVID restrictions and weak demand. The non-manufacturing PMI fell sharply in November, showing contractions in both construction and services activity. While the zero-COVID policy is taking a heavy toll on the economy, the Chinese government is accelerating preparations to exit this policy, introducing an elderly vaccination campaign, softening official messaging on health risks, and loosening restrictions in large cities. China's recent easing moves underscore the challenges to achieving zero-COVID status in the face of the highly contagious Omicron variant. 
Well, our baseline remains that the government will try to exit the zero COVID policy after March 2023. The risk of a forced reopening by the end of this year is increasing. The zero COVID policy may fall apart much faster than expected due to rapid transmission of the virus and local government's fiscal constraints. That's all I have. I'll turn it back to you, Jay. Thanks, Jerry. Now, before we start our chat with Karthik, one of our listeners emailed a question for Ann Walsh, who was guest on episode 25 of our podcast. We will get Karthik's reaction to Ann's answer on the other side. Our listener writes, Ann, I'm wondering if you typically see changes in market liquidity heading into year end, and if this year you are seeing anything different. Here is Ann's answer. We do typically see less liquidity as we move closer to year end, but this year we are seeing a reduction in liquidity for three reasons that are specific to this year. First, M2 growth has turned negative. After rising precipitously post-COVID, the Fed has been engaged in QT, quantitative tightening, which has led to this shrinkage of liquidity and availability of credit. Second, Rising rates have caused the issuance of new corporate debt and other spread sectors to fall significantly in 2022. This has led to less price discovery as the market clearing price of new issuance helps to guide investors. With less price discovery, investors are more cautious about taking risk. Finally, the usual market makers like broker dealers are holding less inventory preferring instead to merely act as intermediaries to match buyers and sellers, resulting in smaller lots being transacted and at a slower pace. Given all of these factors, we would expect liquidity to be down at the end of this year. The flip side of these circumstances is that being a provider of capital usually results in opportunity for the portfolios we manage for our clients. And that's Anne's answer. Thank you so much, Anne, and thank you to our listener for sending in the question. I, I want to now welcome Karthik Narayanan, head of our Securitize team. Karthik, thank you very much for waiting, and thanks for being with us today. Now, Karthik, before we dive into uh, the Securitize market, what did you think of Anne's answer to that excellent question? Thanks, Jay. It, it actually echoes very much what we're seeing day-to-day on the desk in the um, securitized markets. So we haven't seen forced selling. There's been an orderly and small amount of trading activity. Dealers are available to intermediate those trades on a smaller scale. Um, And the, the market function and the pricing transmission mechanism is there, but it's not happening with great market depth. When we went back and looked at trading volumes for this time of the year versus last year, um, the headline numbers are down versus where we were uh, in terms of trading volume last year. But drilling into that further, um, it's it's really some of the on-the-run sectors that are seeing less activity. The off-the-run sectors, they're doing about what you'd expect this time of year. So overall, it is quiet, but we're not seeing any major dislocations. Thanks for that perspective. Now, let's let's start with some basic terms and definitions. When we talk about credit, we can be talking about two forms of fixed income, corporate credit and structured credit. What's the difference between them? So both the corporate credit market and structured credit market uh, are credit-related markets, as you can tell from their names. And a large part of the investment thesis and the diligence that investors must undertake is is that there's some chance you don't get all your money back. That's credit risk. Uh, Corporate credit market deals with debt instruments 
whose repayment is is backed by simply the promise of the corporation to repay. And it's what we call unsecured debt. Um, If you turn then to the corporate bank loan market, these debt instruments are secured, meaning that in addition to this promise to repay by the operating company, there's also a pledge of assets that reduces the loss that lenders would experience under duress. And that's getting a little more similar to the structured credit market. Anything in structured credit is secured by uh, two forms of repayment. The first form is a contractual source of repayments. So within structured credit, those contractual sources of repayments, the sort of first line of defense for lenders, it could be mortgages on commercial properties, it could be uh, leases on maritime containers or on a fleet of rental cars. Um, um, The secondary source of repayment is a pledge of assets. So that could be real estate, it could be shipping containers, um, it could be aircraft. So there's sort of this two layer repayment source, but the structured credit market is a secured credit market to use the the bond market parlance. Great. Now, you mentioned some of them, but what are some of the different kinds of structured credit? How are they different and how are they the same? So the structured credit market, it's a $3 trillion market and it's very diverse. One area of the structured credit market is the CLO market that's backed by secured corporate loans. Uh, You also have the MBS market where you have residential mortgages as collateral. You have the asset-backed securities or ABS market where the collateral could be franchise royalties on um, restaurant franchises. There could be data center leases. There could be auto loans. It could be leases on cell towers. So there's a great deal of collateral diversity. Now, those are the ways that parts of the structured credit market vary from one another, but there's also a lot in common. One of the key things that all these variety of deals uh, have in common is their sources of repayment. They have a primary source of repayment, such as mortgage contracts or leases, as I mentioned, and they also have a secondary source of repayment that could be in the form of hard assets, real estate, et cetera. All areas of structured credit have some form of credit enhancement, which is a mechanism to reduce losses. There's a waterfall, as we call it, or a priority of payments that um, is a legal terms that define which tranches get paid first. That also is a form of credit enhancement because senior and higher rated bonds are paid earlier, whereas junior and lower rated bonds are, are paid later. And there's also tests and triggers that can divert um, excess cash flow in these deals to further benefit the senior tranches if there's any kind of performance deterioration. Now, let's focus in on uh, one particular sector within uh, structured credit, uh, the residential mortgage-backed securities market. How does an MBS work and why are they so important to the housing finance system? MBS securitization showed up in the markets in the 1980s. um, And before that time, Uh, Mortgage loans would be made by a bank or credit union or other financial institution. And then that loan would stay on that institution's balance sheet and slowly get paid back over, you know, 10, 20, 30 years as the borrower made monthly payments or perhaps paid it off early in the event that they refinanced or moved and, and sold their house. With the advent of securitization starting in mortgages in the 1980s, what would happen is these mortgages would get created and then within a few months they would get bundled up into large collateral pools um, that would then serve as uh, the collateral for these secured MBS bonds that are sold to investors. The proceeds from those 
sales of those bonds to investors would recycle back to the financial institution and free up their balance sheet to make more loans. So it increases the velocity of capital within the financial institution. The way the securitizations all work, and this is both with respect to um, the government part of the market or the agency market, as well as the private label or the non-agency part of the market. If the loans were made under Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac standards, what we call the uh, GSEs, the trust would uh, carry the guarantee from the GSEs that would insulate investors from loss of principal. If the loans are not made under the GSE program, then they fall under the umbrella of you know, private label mortgages. And there, the sponsor or the arranger of the, of the securitization would go out and engage with rating agencies to have the various tranches rated um, and then incorporate some of these credit enhancement features that I mentioned before to make the risk profile palatable to investors. The non-GSE part of the market, the private label, mortgage market, that's something like a $650 billion market today. Now, Karthik, um, what are you seeing right now in, in spreads and yields for uh, residential mortgage-backed securities? And let's focus on the non-agency sector. Uh, and where do these levels stand relative to their own history? In a nutshell, spreads are wide in non-agency RMBS. If we look in the post-financial crisis, the post-GFC period, Spreads are about as wide as they've been. And in fact, if you take out the three-month period of March, April, and May 2020, when we were at the depths of COVID and it was unclear what the pandemic's effect on the economy, let alone on humanity, was, if we, if we take out that period, spreads are about as wide as they've, they've been in this, in this post-GFC period. And, and they were as wide as they've been in the third quarter. So there's been a little bit of retracement since then. Um, in terms of levels, we're seeing for first priority senior AAA tranches backed by prime loans, which have a very low expectation of default, those yield in the mid 5% area. Whereas we uh, look at similar first priority senior AAA tranches backed by uh, loans that fall outside of the GSC standards, which um, are called non-qualified mortgages or non-QM. Those are generally in the 6.5% area. And if we look at reperforming mortgages. So these are loans that have gotten into trouble in the past, um, but generally have a pretty good equity position and low LTV uh, that reduces their default probability in the future. Those are in the seven and a half percent area. So, you know, the, the spectrum for senior first priority, low principal risk securities is in the five point something to seven point something percent yield area. Now, if we move out on the risk spectrum to parts of the market that have more um, credit sensitivity and structural leverage, um, such as subordinated tranches, and some of the credit risk transfer uh, subsectors of the market, those yields are in the 9 to 12% area. And you haven't seen those types of yields and spreads in quite a long time, it sounds like. No, and, and we can talk a little more about what's driving that, but these are unprecedented um, levels outside of an, an active crisis period. So um, let's ask that question, uh, Karthik. What is driving pricing right now? Going one by one through the drivers of pricing, first off, the one that we all know about is higher mortgage rates. So higher mortgage rates and falling home sales have suppressed mortgage origination. With lower mortgage origination, there's a lower supply of, of MBS. 
Um, you know, with mortgage rates rising all throughout the year and crossing 6%, the entire mortgage universe is out of the money to refinance. North of 80% of mortgage borrowers have mortgage rates of 4% or below, which means based on where rates are today, they'd have to fall over 2.5% before these borrowers would gain any economic motivation to refinance. So not only is the whole market out of the money, but it's out of the money by considerable margin. So the result there is that, you know, with low demand for purchasing homes and low demand for refinancing homes, prepayment activity has really sunk, um, as has overall housing sales. So normally, less supply is a positive from a technical standpoint, and indeed it is as mortgage origination volumes have come way down and there's very little supply hitting the market. So that's a good technical. But the other part of the effect of higher mortgage rates has been on lower prepayment speeds. So for mortgages, lower prepayment speeds increase the duration and the expected maturity of the bonds. And it's happening at a time when interest rates are rising. And that creates uncertainty for investors and hurts total return performance. So all of those things have sort of come to pass this year. Higher interest rates have also lowered the dollar prices on these bonds to where there's AAA rated bonds, which can um, easily survive a repeat of the financial crisis type scenario, which is not something we're expecting anything close to seeing in the next year or two. But even if you simulate that scenario, um, these bonds would survive that kind of stress and they're trading in the 70s and 80s dollar price. And so at these dollar prices, these mortgage bonds carry very little call risk. And call risk is something that normally investors want to get paid for. So as call risk has gotten squeezed out of these bonds, there's very little residual risk that investors are demanding a premium for. And the return profile on these bonds um, gets a lot more stable. The last important piece is demand. So 75% of the RMBS uh, 2.0 market, and that's the market that was originated you know, post-financial crisis is held by money managers. And money managers as a group have been dealing with, uh, you know, negative fund flows all year. And even though we haven't seen any kind of dramatic demand to sell uh, MBS, just the softening climate of demand and sort of lack of risk appetite has led to a dearth of buyers in the market. And that's been enough to allow spreads to slowly drift wider, even though there's really not been any um, real demand for selling. Karthik, how does the, the dynamics of the housing market itself uh, play into uh, drivers of uh, value in uh, the residential mortgage-backed securities market? The run-up in home prices in the last two years and the level of mortgage rates now has really put a crimp on affordability. So from a demand side, um, there's been a real chill uh, put over the housing market. So we're kind of in the early innings, low transaction activity, starting to see some inventory build. Now, zooming out, if we put this in a broader scheme of things, we're just talking about the demand side of the equation. The supply side of the equation remains very constrained because one, we have a mortgage market that's had very tight lending standards for the last 12 years. Two, um, homeowners have a lot of built up equity in their properties due to home price appreciation, not only from the last two years, but you know, over the last many years. Um, and three, the labor market, uh, it remains pretty strong, especially among uh, higher earners. So the supply side of the picture um, is a pretty big mitigant to any real 
meaningful downside risk in terms of home prices. We do expect prices at a national level to correct to some extent over the next several quarters, but we don't expect to see anything remotely close to what we saw in the financial crisis. Now, the last part of your question was, how does this translate? And it's kind of what we spend our day jobs doing is thinking about how this translates to picking good investments. So with a modest decline in home prices, we don't expect um, major stress on most investment grade type of bonds within the RMBS market. And even for parts of the market, such as the old RMBS 1.0, so that's the 200 billion or so of really bombed out deals that were done for the parts of the market that we do uh, spend more of our time looking at, we don't view this macro outlook as really having a big impact on the thesis because a lot of the initial conditions, I, as I mentioned, the supply side of the picture, um, sort of credit underwriting is starting off, those initial conditions are starting off from a good place. Thematically, what we're looking for is compensation for liquidity premium or complexity premium on stable credits that are going to go in through this period of softening macroeconomic conditions um, and do not require us to make very sharp pinpoint bets about the state of the housing market or about prepayments or about... So to put it in a nutshell, we're not looking to push the envelope in terms of going down the capital structure, adding structural leverage and trying to add units of risk at this point. We're really trying to maximize getting paid liquidity and complexity premium at a point in time where there's not a lot of liquidity in the market. Great. Now, so uh, I know that from your perch uh, as head of Securitized, you you look at uh, the whole uh, structured credit market. Uh, can you spend a, a minute or two just giving us a tour of what you're seeing in some of the other parts of this sector? Sure, Jay. There's actually some common themes with what we just have spoken about in RMBS. In all of the structured credit sectors, and just for everyone's benefit, that consists, in addition to RMBS that we're talking about, it consists of CMBS, that's commercial mortgage-backed securities. It's about a $650 or $700 billion market. It includes CLOs, collateralized loan obligations. So these are uh, ABS deals that are backed by large, diverse portfolios of senior secured corporate bank loans. Uh, and also includes the asset-backed securities market, which is the biggest, most diverse part of the market. And, uh, includes things such as whole business securitizations, data centers, um, consumer credit card receivables, et cetera. Now, issuance in all of these sectors is very light. As the cost of borrowing has gone up with higher interest rates and the demand for credit is cooling off in the real economy, there's not a lot of demand for um, issuance. And what we're really looking for in all of these sectors is these loss remote risk profiles where we're getting paid um, for taking complexity risk uh, or liquidity risk as opposed to going out and pushing the envelope on credit risk at a point here where we're expecting the economy to continue to see some softening in the coming quarters. Now, that involves a couple of things. In ABS, it's um, shipping container ABS, whole business securitizations, data centers. In CMBS, we've been focusing on uh, commercial real estate-backed CLOs. So these are deals backed um, by uh, generally by multifamily properties that are undergoing some degree of renovation and repositioning in the market. Um, in CLOs, we've been active in certain parts of the uh, market at the single A, double A, and triple A level. 
where there's some parts of that market that have some weaker market sponsorship and there are some higher risk premiums to be earned at this point. Um, so all of these areas are yielding north of 6% and sometimes closer to 7.5%. Um, now, there is one area that is a riskier part of the market where we are selectively looking for opportunities and, and are very active, and that's an aircraft ABS. This is obviously a part of the market that's had its ups and downs over the last few years. But the dollar prices on these bonds are sufficiently low that it does provide a lot of insulation to the downside scenarios on certain deals where we have a level of comfort with both the operators as well as the planes, as well as the contracts on the plane. So when we can kind of get all those planets to align, that's a part of the market where yields are, you know, in the, in the eight to 12% range. What's the dollar price on aircraft ABS? It'll vary by seniority um, and by deal. But um, if, if we limit the discussion to senior tranches, you know, those are going to be in the in the seventies generally, maybe in the sixties on certain deals, maybe in the in the eighties on some other deals. So a lot of opportunities out there for new capital. To finish our conversation, uh, I want to look ahead a little bit, Karthik. Um, you know, after two years of very accommodative monetary policy, uh, things have changed uh, significantly in the last year, and we're now in the middle of what has turned into a long and dramatic shift in monetary policy. Uh, with rate hikes and quantitative tightening um, in full force. Um, how does this backdrop play into your outlook for structured credit? So Jay, the, I'd say the first observation is with the reduction of just money in the system and tightening financial conditions, um, that naturally has had a, a, an effect of raising the ambient level of credit spreads. Um, now, when you look at that, in addition to higher benchmark rates, the yield on structured credit assets is, is dramatically higher than we've seen outside of you know, any kind of crisis period, such as the GFC or, or COVID. So you know, just as an example, if we take you know, the one that I mentioned a few moments ago, whole business ABS, if we look back pre-COVID or even in 2020, um, you know, deals were getting done at 25 or 3% yields. Uh, those same bonds are now trading in the 6.5% yield area. Similarly, if we look at AAA first priority RMBS, those deals were getting done in that time frame at around a 2% yield, and now they're trading at a 6.5% yield. And if you think about fixed income, which is an instrument that has a concept of a maturity, unlike, you know, say, equities, which are perpetual, if you buy a fixed income instrument and hold it to maturity and successfully pick securities that do not experience defaults, the yield will approximate the return you expect to get. So if you think about it in, in that kind of fundamental term, the yields on this whole complex of securities has increased you know, two to three times versus just a few years ago. So in other words, the whole forward distribution of returns for structured credit as an asset class has moved to the right quite a bit. So you know, with that, I don't want to gloss over the fact that these investments carry risk. Um, you know, with these tighter financial conditions that the Fed is engineering and the expectation for either recessionary conditions or just, you know, more generally a reduction in aggregate demand in the real economy in the next couple of quarters, that will be negative for credit fundamentals. Um, we think in a lot of these sectors, the fundamentals are, are starting off in a good place and these deals are appropriately structured, but we can't gloss over the fact that this is not without risk. Um, so with those headwinds, um, we, again, to kind of close the circle, are keenly focused on making sure that we're getting paid for complexity or liquidity 
as opposed to just turning up the risk dial and, and um, taking more units of risk at a point in time when yes, spreads are attractive, but risks are also elevated. Do you think that you're getting compensated for those risks? We are, and it's part of the reason generally in our credit strategies that we're still overweight to this sector as a kind of core central holding. Um, the risk premiums in structured credit, uh, we think are very much outsized relative to the actual um, fundamental risk that investors are bearing. Um, there will be some mark-to-market volatility along the way, but on a long-term basis, we do think these risk premiums are attractive. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, first of all, thank you all for tuning in to hear about structured credit. It's an area that's inherently complicated and not often part of the you know, broader financial conversation and, and markets. So we're very happy to speak about this in depth. Um, second of all, to all of our clients, uh, you know, certainly want to express appreciation for allowing us to be good and diligent stewards of your capital. Thank you very much, Karthik, uh, for joining us today. Uh, please come back and visit us again soon to report on your sector. Thanks, Jay. Happy to be here. Again, thank you, Karthik. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you to Jerry Tsai uh, for his contribution. And of course, thanks to Ann Walsh uh, for answering our listeners' question. If any of you have a question for Karthik uh, or any of our other podcast guests, uh, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com. And we will do our best to answer them either on the air or offline. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Structured credit, including asset-backed securities or ABS, mortgage-backed securities and CLOs are complex investments and not suitable for all investors. Investors in structured credit generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some structured credit investments may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile and they're subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risks to investing in loans directly, including credit risk, interest rate risk, counterparty risk and prepayment risk. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their values to decline. High-yield and unrated debt securities are at greater risk of default than investment-grade bonds and may be less liquid, which may increase volatility. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. 
Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC.